right. Hey, uh, good to see some teeth. Really good to see some teeth today. So uh, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Jeremiah. We're in uh, kind of in the middle of uh, the year of the Bible, and so we've got a couple more weeks in the Old Testament. Then after Memorial Day, we will uh, begin the uh, start of the New Testament with Jesus' ministry. Uh, But let me say hello to the other uh, Western North Carolina campuses, man. It's good to hear all the stories from different places, but let me give you a quick shout out. The newest campus we have is the Brevard campus, uh, out near the Davidson river. That's where everybody wants to office because it's so beautiful out there. But that place in the, I guess, eight or nine weeks, I think it's been maybe eight or nine weeks, maybe 10 weeks. It's been open has been just a it's been a baptism factory out there. It has been amazing to watch how many folks have, have repented and embraced Jesus and then been baptized. Even just last week, just last week at the Brevard campus, they baptized 10 or 11 just at the Brevard campus. So great news for everybody, but uh, put your hands together and just say, anyway, just God's still in the work of saving people. And again, whether you are watching locally because uh, your gas tank was empty or whether you're watching online from wherever, thank you for joining us. Special shout out to the Stevens family in uh, South Asheville. I'm assuming gasoline. Uh, Kimberly from New Jersey. I'm assuming gasoline. Just kidding. Kimberly, glad you're visiting with us. Nancy from Florida. And then I think I'm going to pronounce it right. Dilcia. What a cool name. Dilcia who watches every week from Nicaragua. So, uh, hey, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, And, hey, one other thing, you'll be hearing some things for the last 13 months. We've maybe had one or two, but so much stuff has kind of been put on the shelf, and one of those things has been the starting point classes, which is sort of the front door into uh, the life of the church. And just so you know, whatever campus you're on, those are now being scheduled for this summer, so listen for that. If you've been here for a while and you've never been to the starting point or whether today's your first day, that is a great, great way uh, to jump in, and you'll be hearing a lot about that. And then lastly, I know that most of you saw the COVID protocol revision, and then that was actually done. Done, uh, Thursday, and so a lot has changed even since Thursday. So look for another revision uh, this week. You'll be happy you did. All right. So here's what I want to do. Uh, one of the great blessings of God, if you're on social media, is that uh, you can use a filter. All right. If you um, if you use a filter, if you're not familiar with that, basically what a filter does, depending on which one you use, it makes you look better than you are. It just does, all right? If you have a bad case of acne, boom, it's just gone, all right? If you uh, want to take all your gray hair out, boom, it's gone. You're a brunette again. Whatever it is you want, they've got all these different kinds of filters that basically say, you know what? I don't like the way I look. I want to change the way I look, and I want to put the best foot forward that I possibly can. So let's have a little fun with a few folks. Uh, here's, here's a person, and this is a young man who's, challenged with real cream. And so what he's, what he's dealing with is he's like, this is the before, but what actually goes out is totally clean skin. All right. I wish it was that easy. Correct. And he was like, man, I was a teenager. I wish it was that easy. Here's one that I thought was funny. Maybe you won't, but this is uh, Instagram uh, and then reality. All right. This is everything is together. Everything's going awesome. I'm at, like, it looks like the, tra- yeah, the train station and that's what we portray to other people. It's like, I got it all together. Everything's going smooth, but in reality, this is what's typically going on, all right? It's like your life is on fire, not sure how I'm actually going to make it. And then here's one you're going to have to look closely at. And uh, it's, a, it's a young guy that you might not notice at the start, but he's got this filter that basically put, adds weight 
to the weight that he is portraying himself lifting. The reason you know is if you look in the back of the mirror, if you look back here, he's got one barbell on it. But when he goes on social media, now you are laughing because some of y'all do this at the gym as well. All right, you'll like lift. And then when you get off the machine, you'll, you'll put it to a lot heavier weight. Some of y'all do that. I've seen you do it. But this is this guy trying to say, I don't want you to see the real me. I don't want you to see me, warts and all. I don't want you to see the fact that I've got, I'm curling 40 pounds. I want you to see that I'm curling hundreds of pounds. One of the great, great, one of the many great things that I love about the Bible is there is no filter. When you see the people in the, in the Bible, it is, it, it, the people there are, they have got flaws, they have got baggage, they have got issues. And the guy we're gonna see today is one of God's best, but... It shows you in the raw. It actually is the idea of almost you're like looking in somebody's diary as he pours his heart out to God. And I'll tell you on the front end, it's not pretty. Some of you, if you've never looked at this passage, you're like, is, can that be in the Bible? I didn't know stuff like that was actually in the Bible. And what it shows us is that good men and good women can still get in a bad place. And one of the things that we talk about often, all the time, all the time, is the church does not need to be a place where you come in and act like you have never had a bad season, like you've never been in a bad place. The phrase we use all the time is we want to be a church that is safe but not soft. And what that means is we want to be a place of authenticity while acknowledging, listen, bottom line is we all struggle with sin. Bottom line is we are still kind of wretched, black-hearted sinners that still struggle, that are still broken, and we want to be a safe place where we don't have to put on airs to act like we're something that we're not. But we don't want to be soft in the sense that we want to be a place that nudges each other, exhorts each other, encourages each other toward repentance, toward the cross, because it's okay to not be okay, all right? but it's not okay to be okay with not being okay. In other words, we wanna be a place that says, all right, it's okay to not be okay, but the gospel and God does not just leave you there, all right? It's about life change, it's about transformation. It's about saying, you know what, here's what I was before and here's who I am now. So the text we're gonna deal with today is dealing with what happens when godly people get depressed. Now, I know when I say the word depressed, that is a loaded term. It's a loaded term for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of the reasons is, is because depression is on a continuum. On one part of the depression continuum is just discouragement. You have a bad day, you have a bad week, everybody, everybody has been there. And so on one side is just discouragement, but on the other end is despair and depression. On one side is I had a bad week. On the other side is I'm having a bad life. And so what we're going to look at, we're not going to try to diagnose everything. We're going to deal a lot with some things that you see in the text. But you got to understand, this is epidemic, particularly, particularly, not just during COVID, but particularly just in our country. Statistically, they say that pre-COVID, 11% of Americans struggled However you want to define depression, 11% of Americans struggled with depression. Right now, they estimate that 42% of Americans struggle with what could be called depression. And here's some things that were actually pre-COVID. Pre-COVID, there were more than 254 million prescriptions written for antidepressants in 
the US, 254 million. Now, folks, there's, I can't remember the exact number, but there's just a little bit over 300 million people in our country. So somebody's double dipping. That's all I gotta say. Somebody's going back for seconds. It is the second highest volume drug in the United States. Only medications for cholesterol have more in annual expense. Americans spend close to $12 billion on antidepressants. And yet 34,000 people pre-COVID took their life every year. That's 94 suicides a day. That's one every 15 minutes. And for every, quote, successful attempt, there are a hundred that are not successful. Suicide is the third leading cause of death among teenagers. And please don't think for a minute, good, godly Christ followers don't struggle with this. Some of the best folks that you know struggle with this. Winston Churchill, he struggled with this. He talked about how the dragon of depression dogged him all day long. Got named Charles Spurgeon, probably the best preacher since the Apostle Paul. He talked about how he battled depression the entire, he was like the first megachurch pastor before megachurches were even a thing. That was him in London. He said he battled depression his entire ministry. Even if you go into the Bible, you look at the book of Psalms, there's a whole section called the Psalms of Lament. There's Psalms that start off like, how long, God, how long are you going to turn a deaf ear to me? You go to Moses, great leader. Moses is like, I'm sick of leading these people. Why don't you just kill me? Elijah performed almost as many miracles as anybody. Elijah gets worn out from ministry, he goes out, sits under a tree, and it's like, I'm no better than my father's, why don't you just take my life too? And then to cap it off, you got a guy like Jonah. I mean, Jonah, he gets depressed because God was good and gracious to the Assyrians and sent revival, and he's like, well, if you're gonna be gracious to them, as wicked as they are, why don't you just take my life? But the rock bottom example of this is Jeremiah. And in Jeremiah chapter 20, you're gonna see a section in the Bible that I'm pretty comfortable is not in your daily devotional life. Pretty sure you don't have this knitted on a pillow. Quite certain this is not framed in anybody's household today. And what it seems like is he's writing to almost no audience but himself and God. And so I'm gonna read like six or seven verses. I'm not even gonna make that much commentary on them. And what I wanna show you is, listen, good people, godly people can get there. And so the question is, how do we get there? But then the next question is, how do we get out of there? All right, so prepare, I warned you. Here's what the, here's what the verses say. Jeremiah 20, verse seven. Oh Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. The word deceived there, by the way, is actually the word that's usually used in the Old Testament for like an old guy seducing a young woman. That's what it's used for. You tricked me. You entrapped me. You allured me into a situation. You deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, 
and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak, I cry out violence and destruction. That was the message God had given him. For the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. And if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary with holding it in and I cannot. God had told him, you're gonna go, you're gonna preach, you're gonna, what are you gonna preach? What's your, what's your message? You're gonna preach judgment. My people have walked away from me. Your job is to go and preach that destruction and judgment is coming. But most of it had not come yet and so people were making fun of him. Oh, you joked around, or oh, your prophecy is not correct. He tries to be quiet, but because of God had given him a message, he couldn't keep the message inside, and here's what he hears. For I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Denounce him, let us denounce him. Say all of my close friends, they're watching for my fall. They're thinking perhaps he will be deceived. Then we can overcome him and take our revenge but the Lord is with me as a dread warrior, which again, the first few verses is how do we get there? These verses are how do we get out? But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. They will be greatly shamed for they will not succeed. Their eternal dishonor will never be forgotten. O Lord of hosts who test the righteous, who sees the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them. For to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the life of the needy from the hand of the evildoer. You're like, man, I'd be scared to talk to God like that. If you're a parent, in some ways, you know what this is. If you're a parent and you've got a young child, there are times when he or she gets so upset. Maybe they're worn out. Maybe they didn't sleep well. Maybe they got a cold. Maybe they got something. But most every single parent has had that little boy, that little girl, get so mad they just almost lose it and you pick them up and they're just, no, 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 no. What do you do as a parent? You take them and go, man, I'm not going to have anything to do with you. Nobody does that. No good parent does that at all. Nobody does that. You understand some things that God understood about Jeremiah and that we need to understand about ourselves and then understand also about God. And so when you look at a text like this, uh, as I said, depression is a loaded term, many different kinds, again, from discouragement to chemical, uh, clinical issues. Let me say it again. I'm not trying to diagnose or provide one easy solution. What I am trying to say is the text tells us a lot about how we get there, whether it be discouragement on one end or despair on the other, and how do we get out of. Um, here's the first one. How do we get there? So jot a couple things down. If you're not there now, you'll probably find yourself there at some point, and it is, I'm just going to call it divine disappointment. Do you see what he said in verse 7? In verse 7, he says, you have deceived me, God. You have tricked me. You basically bait and switched to me. You called me to be a prophet and I thought it would go one way and it's not going that way at all. At this point in the story, Jeremiah has preached for 20 years, day after day, 
faithfully the message God told him to preach, which was judgment is coming, repent. Judgment is coming, repent. Judgment is coming, repent. So he preaches it faithfully. He does exactly what God tells him to do. He is the prophet that some people will say that depending on how you count him, he is quoted most often by Jesus. But here he is, it's like, you seduced me into being a prophet. In other words, you tricked me. I've been faithful, no results. And again, God had told him in chapter one, he hadn't tricked him at all. He told him this would be a difficult ministry. When I was reading that this week and going over it and studying it, it, the flashback came to something I told you a couple of months ago and that what he is saying is what, and because we don't talk like this in church, what we do is we talk behind God's back about like this. Can't believe God would let this happen. I can't believe that he would not restore my marriage. I can't believe he would allow us to have this happen in our life. I remember distinctly still years and years and years ago when Lori and I, she was graduating from nursing school and I was graduating from seminary. We lived in Fort Worth. We'd been married about two years. We were so excited. We're coming to the, I'm coming to the end of four years of grad work and it's like you're, you're excited because you're like, all right, where's God going to send us? Where God, where's God going to send us? Never pastored a church before. And so we get our, we, it's like, all right, we're going to Blue Grove, Texas, all right? You don't know where Blue Grove is, but man, I was fired up. We just got our first, they got their first stoplight like a year ago. No lie, all right? No lie, first stoplight. It was awesome, seriously. It was, they were awesome people. But we were so excited about that. It's like, man, we get to go and all this stuff we've learned, we get to go actually try it out on live people. This will be, this will be amazing. And uh, as excited as we were, the thing that seemed to, stick in our minds is how a lot of our friends that were every bit is committed, every bit is a sacrifice. Because when you go to seminary, you've got to kind of work your stuff around your classes so you take whatever jobs you can get as long as you can get the classes. So you typically are not doing some real like sexy job, all right? You're doing jobs like whatever, landscaping or cleaning toilets or whatever you're doing. And so a lot of these people, another thing that stands out in my mind is a lot of the people, when I went to seminary, I went to seminary as a 22-year-old, thinking that everybody does that, they go to college, then they go to seminary. And when I went there, most of the people there were like late 20s, early 30s or late 30s. And the story you heard is, hey, I went off and I went and I was running my dad's business or the family farm or whatever. And then I was running from God's call and then I surrendered to God's call. And then I went to seminary. We packed up everything, packed up the kids and left the family business and here I am. But what stood out is as excited as we were, you had good people, godly people, people who were committed and sacrificial people who had not been called to a church. And they started acting like Jeremiah. It's like, why? Did you trick us into leaving the family business that was comfortable? Did you trick us into yanking our kids out of school and moving to some place so we could do four years only to come to the end of four years and get nothing? And so we don't talk like that. And they didn't talk like that, but you could hear it in there. It's like, God, you've tricked me. Now, you might not have been to seminary, but we say it like this and we hear it like this. God, I prayed and I fasted for my marriage to be saved. We got counseling and I corrected my ways and I started acting like a godly spouse again and the marriage still disintegrated. God, you let me get laid off at 60 years old. Same company for 30 years. Nobody's hiring a 60-year-old person right now. I ran my business for the glory of God. We more than tied. We sponsor compassion kids and we're going bankrupt. 
And I look across the mall and I see somebody across the mall that doesn't fear you, doesn't love you, doesn't sponsor little kids in another country, and they're the one that's just blossoming. Got to pray this chronic illness would go away, but every morning I wake up and it hurts. My connect group's praying for me. My family's praying for me. Good night, I got a Facebook group praying for me and nothing has changed. You've tricked me and I'm disappointed. And then even if you can't get victory over a particular sin, you're like, God, I prayed about this. I pray you would take this away. I pray that I would have victory over this. And yet I still go down in the rabbit hole. You tricked me. What happens is when you look into the future and you can't see how it could get better, uh, that can lead definitely to despair. And here's what's awesome about this. God could have edited this part of the Bible out. You understand that, right? God could have done that if he wanted to. He could have said, nah, let's put some other stuff in there. It's a little bit, you know, hey, they like that 23rd Psalm deal about the fact that I'm their shepherd. Let's put another one of those in there, okay? Let's put, that'll be awesome, all right? All right, uh, let's put another thing about Song of Solomon, man. You know, sex sells and people love that. Let's put another one, but that's not what he does. He puts something in there that you and I are in some ways shocked by and go, how could he put that in there? And one of the reasons he puts that in there is even though it's depressing in some ways, even though most of you will never memorize parts of this book, he puts this in there. One of reasons is to say, you know what? He knows how you feel and it's okay. Listen to me. It's okay to express these emotions to God. Not saying the emotions are accurate. What I'm saying is there's no other place in the Bible that says, and by the way, when Jeremiah let God have it, God fell off of his throne. There's no other, there's no appendix that says, you know what? God was so shocked that he just closed up shop. There's none of that in here. What you see is this lament, even though not accurate, was at least honest. And it's okay to be deeply honest with God. You know the people I worry about the most, honestly, or when they go through a difficult time or suffering or whatever, and they just, they just push it down and they just shove it down and they just keep it in. Because what happens with those people typically is just they still get angry with God. They just kind of push it down and push it down and push it down and push it down. And some of you are like, oh, Jeremiah wasn't that spiritual. I like Martin Luther said this about Jeremiah. He said, basically, those who say Jeremiah is not spiritual enough have never really experienced the stuff of real life and ought to keep their mouth shut. Jeremiah's depression didn't mean he was secretly a spiritual midget. Instead, it revealed a spiritual giant who still found himself experiencing growing pains. He says, even though the prayers found in Jeremiah 20 fall far short of the Sermon on the Mount, they come from the hurting heart of one of God's best, one of God's greatest servants of all time. So usually if God disappoints you, you're going to go one way or the other. And Jeremiah for a while went one way. And so here's the second thing you see in the text. It's repeated rejection. Repeated rejection. Verse 7 says he's become a laughingstock. Again, he's being accused of being a false prophet. Normally you'd have to have that prophecy fulfilled pretty quick and it's dragging on. And he says they mock me. It means to make fun of or to whisper. And then they nickname him. You know what they nickname him? They nickname in the Hebrew it's called Megor Misabib, which means death and destruction. So you got nicknames for people. That's red. Why? Because he's got red hair. They call him Megor Misabib, which means basically there's old death and destruction. And so the idea of this goes on for a while. It goes on over and over. The kids, when they're out playing, hey, there's old violence and destruction. Jeremiah goes to Publix to get some groceries, and the people in the aisle are like, hey, there's old death and destruction. Even his close friends, the ones that had walked through life, that had seen his life, said, hey, we're just 
man, we're just waiting for this guy to fall. He's not part of us at all anymore. And again, the, the truth is, Jeremiah had been preaching death and destruction. That's what he did. That's not the kind of message that wins you friends and influences uh, people at all. One of the things that we talk about all the time, one of the things we have to understand, because we, you got to understand, we all want approval. You're like, no, I don't. Well, you just kind of actually proved the point. We all want approval. We all want approval. We all want to be respected for maybe what we've done or who we are or what we've accomplished. We all, we all want that. We all want acceptance. We all want the retweets. We all want the likes on Facebook. We all want those kind of things. We want people to be impressed by what we do. That's why oftentimes we'll spend money we don't have to get stuff we don't need. That's why sometimes you're thinking, okay, I, I, is there anything wrong with wanting to be wanted? Not really. Here's what we have to be careful of. When being, wanting to be accepted, wanting to be respected, when that goes from being a want to a need, you're heading into a bad place. When it goes from being a want to a have to, something I worship, then we're going into trouble. That's why the book of Proverbs says this, the fear of man brings a snare. It brings a trap. We start acting in a certain way. Honestly, that's why a lot of people cannot share their faith in Jesus with somebody else because you're afraid, what will they think? They will reject me. They won't invite me to play golf with them anymore. They won't let me be in their little huddle anymore. I won't be asked to the prom anymore. And so we're like, I'm just going to play it safe. That's why we hammer over and over again. When you understand the gospel identity, the gospel identity, you know what? The gospel is that Jesus knew us, knew all of our wretchedness, all of our bad motives, and he still died for us and still loves us. And then he transfers to you all the righteousness from his account. And so our primary identity is not the way other people define us. And what we talked about is this. On our identity, there's two spectrums. If we have a gospel identity, it's humility and we're humble. Why? Because we understood we were so bad, God had to die for us. And yet we're confident and we don't shrink back and we're not afraid of man because God chose to die for us even though he knew our stuff. So when it comes to rejection and it comes to this, we gotta go back over and over and over again to that. And here's the last one before we kind of get to some good news. And this one's not as evident in verse seven and on. I'm just gonna say physical or emotional exhaustion. You know what's scary? Why don't you read the stats of all the, uh, the caregivers that are leaving their work right now? Look at all the stats of nurses, even pastors. They're just like, I am out of here. I'm out of here. Because the last 13 months is what has happened is they have poured over and over and over and over and over again. And somewhere in there, there wasn't any refilling of the tank. Jeremiah, you don't see it. We see the outcome of it. But what Jeremiah, if you look at the first six verses, Jeremiah not only has been putting up with all this guff for a while, he's just gotten beaten up. He just got put in stocks. Stocks are not like the old colonial day stocks like this. Stocks back in those days, they put you in a weird position and leave you there so your body would get really, really, really messed up. And so here he is. He is beaten. He is worn out. He is put in stocks. And here's, I don't... We never talk about what I'm just psychobabbling here, okay? We're not gonna just go, well, psych you know, we're not doing that. 
But it is clear when you talk about anthropology. Anthropology is just how God made man, how God made mankind. But God made us, listen to me, don't tune this out. This is very important. Some of you are like, because Christians are invariably, you're either like on one pit or the other pit. But God made us in what they call psychosomatic unity. What that basically means is your soul and your body are made and they impact each other. If your soul is unhealthy, it impacts you physically. If your body is unhealthy, it impacts you spiritually. I mean, there's some super easy ones. Like last night, if you stayed up and watched Saturday Night Live and then whatever comes on after Saturday Night Live, all right, chances are right now you're like, you know, you are, you are snoring because you know what? You got four hours of sleep. That means you are, your body is affecting your soul. In the same way, sometimes your soul will also affect your body, especially if you're a Christian. Now, when you're a Christian, you got to understand this. The physical affecting the spiritual is, is a little bit more obvious. If you're working 90 hours a week, you're ignoring your family and your friends, you neglect your walk with God, depression is actually a gift from God to say, you know what? Your soul is built to scream when this is necessary. Slow down a little bit. Slow down. Take a breath. Value people over things, relationships over accomplishments. Practice the Sabbath. One of the most godly things some of you could do today, please don't do it now, but what some of you could do today is take a nap. Some of you right now, the thing you need to do is shut the phone off, turn the television off, and again, please don't do that right now because that would hurt my feelings and I would be depressed. But if you would simply rest, take your spouse away on a weekend getaway could be like the best thing. But don't, under, don't misunderstand that your soul also can affect you physically as well. If you're a Christian and uh, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, depression is like a God-given emotional response to sin. It's like, listen, stop. What are you thinking? You're ruining your life. You're stealing from your future. It's what we saw with David a few weeks ago when he's like, man, I was just day and night, your hand was heavy on me. I mean, thank God for conviction. Conviction is like, stop going down that road. That road doesn't end anywhere good. And so you're like, well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? Well, how do we get out of it is kind of the next part. And uh, here's what I'm going to say. When you look at it, part of this next section is addressed to God. And part of it is addressed, believe it or not, to himself. Jeremiah is actually, in some of this, he's like talking to himself. He's like doing self-talk. Now, this is not, listen to me, this is not power positive thinking, right? This is not prosperity gibberish. That's like there's power in your tongue. That's not it at all. But what you do see in the Bible over and again, the book of Psalms, for example, is perfect when the psalmist will actually say, you know, bless the Lord, oh my soul, and bless his holy name. It's like he's talking to himself. He's like, fire up, God is good. Psalm 42 says, why are you cast down, oh my soul? Hope in God, hope in God, praise God. Why are you cast down? He's talking to himself. The reason you gotta talk to yourself sometime is because everybody in here, we've got a tape that goes on. Depending on your upbringing, depending on all your baggage and your junk, you got a tape that goes on. And part of the sanctification process is God is taking that tape that is false and trying to replace it with stuff that is new. And if you never replace it, 
then that tape just goes on and on and on and on. You're not forgiven. You are condemned. You're a loser. God cannot, you. what if everybody finds out all the tape? And so what Jeremiah, his downward spiral is, his feelings were, they had taken over. God tricked me. God took advantage of me. God abandoned me. No purpose for me. No hope for me. And uh, what Luther said is this. He said this. When Luther would do this about himself because he struggled with this, he used to call this drowning out the voices of despair with the louder voice of the gospel. And Luther, again, Martin Luther's the guy that like, he was like the instrument to bring in the Protestant Reformation back 500 years ago, 600 years ago. Bottom line is this, he would say this. He said he would physically at times shout at the devil, no, I have not been abandoned. I have not been forsaken. God's word tells me and Jesus' death proves it. And maybe you should do that. Maybe you should do that. Now, I would encourage you, if you're going to do that, go somewhere where it's alone so people don't think you're crazy. But just, you know what? God is good. God is good. God has been good to me in the past. God will be good to me in the future. I am not condemned. I'm not unfit for use. God can use me because of what Jesus did. You see the difference? And, uh, and by the way, if you don't do that, this is where community comes into play. All right? This is where have somebody else do it inevitably you're going to be in a place where you're like, I can't even recall. I've been there before. I can't even recall this stuff. I can't even recall the promises to bring back to mind. And you need to have somebody that speaks into you. No, this is what God says. This is what God's plan is for you. This is how faithful God is, even when you are not faithful. And so how do we do that for us? How do we, how do, we do that? Let me, let me give you one paragraph. There's a book I read this week called Gospel uh, wakefulness, which is about emotions in the gospel. Listen to what he says, a guy named Jared Wilson. He says, the depressed person must defy his depressed self. Stop listening, start talking. Don't blather, don't mumble, take hold of yourself and preach. Tell yourself that you are loved by God, that Christ has died in your stead. Again, this is not some kind of word of faith stuff, all right? That's not what it is. All this is is preaching the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. Tell yourself that you are loved by God, that Christ has died in your place, that the Spirit lives in you, consecrating you to God and guaranteeing your salvation. Inform yourself that Jesus is your defense attorney, 1 John 1, that he pleads his blood over every response to every charge brought against you. Tell your depression that its days are numbered, and even if it could, even if it should, God forbid, last until your dying breath, it will thus be vanquished for all eternity while you escape to everlasting joy. Now, some of you are like, you know what? You've already told us you're an unemotional person. You're an aide on the Enneagram and choleric and, you know, German and all whatever or whatever. And some of that is true. So you can discount this if you want to, but here's the truth. The truth is a gospel-infused fact will in time change your feelings. Not overnight, but over time, a gospel-infused fact over time will change your feelings. Because people are like, well, you can't argue with feelings. Uh, you can argue with feelings. It's not that they're not authentic. It's just that sometimes they're not accurate. They're not accurate. God has forsaken me. No, he has not. You might feel like that, but actually what he says is he's going to roll up his sleeves and move towards you because the Bible says he is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And so what you've got to do is infuse a gospel fact that when Jesus said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? 
The fact that Jesus was forsaken for you means that, you know what? God will never forsake you. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken in your place. So you infuse that enough and all of a sudden the emotions start to get in line. Which, by the way, uh, he ends this, and this is where we're going to end our service in a few minutes. But verse 13, it seems out of place, but he's like, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, sing to the Lord, praise the Lord. He's like, man, that's a long way from God, you seduced me. I mean, that's a long, that's a big jump in six verses, correct? And that's why a few weeks ago we said this, worship is, worship is the fuel for your Christian life. Now, this week has been crazy with fuel, correct? I mean, it's been crazy for fuel. It's like, us. you see people turn on each other. Have y'all ever seen some fights at gas stations? Amazing. It's amazing to watch. But... All that being said, it's like if things really turn bad, you know, probably don't look to him for help. Um, Not him being God, but him being a neighbor you don't know or Karen or whoever it is you're looking for. Bottom line is, bottom line is you saw the fact that, you know what, I can't make much progress if I have no fuel. I can't make much progress if I have no fuel. And what we talked about a few weeks ago is worship is the fuel for the Christian life. Worship is also the fuel. I'm not talking about just about music, but music is included in there. And so when you look at it, one of the ways that that tape gets changed is by putting some stuff on the tape that starts to get, they call it an earworm. Earworm. I know it's a nasty deal, but an earworm is basically that thing that gets in there. If it's a bad earworm, it's like some children's. By the way, some of y'all are giving me a hard time and jumped on the bandwagon because my wife is like, you know, no children's rhymes. You are like deprived as a child. Do you know half those? I'm sorry, I'm such a rabbit chase right now, but do you know half those, do you know half those children's rhymes? Look up the past. They're like on the black plague and everything. I'm like, dude, I was protected to not know any of those children's rhymes, but I knew stuff like Barney, right? Barney. I mean, that, that, that's from hell right there, okay? That is from hell. I know you, you love me, whatever, we're a happy family, give me the gun. I mean, that's what that's what that is. But, a, but you put a gospel-infused song in there. Let me give you a little bit of a hint. When COVID first broke, like that first week when you didn't know if we were all going to turn into like I Am Legend and you're going to be glad if you had a German Shepherd. If you, you know, that's, that first week, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Of course, you know, everything starts to shut down. And I was taking a run. And I still remember now because I was doing it yesterday and the same song came on. And it was that Raise a Hallelujah. You might or might not like the artist or whatever. It's a good song, man. Raise a Hallelujah. Just, hallelujah just means praise the Lord. And part of it says, I will raise a Hallelujah comma stronger than my unbelief. And at that point, God used that to kind of help me start thinking about how faithful God was instead of having a little pity party about, oh, we're going to be, you know, two weeks to flatten the curve, whatever, okay? Two, 13 months to flatten the curve, whatever it is. Bottom line is, put some stuff in there to fuel your Christian life. Because if you don't, you're going to be just like some of those people looking at you and saying, where's gas? Where's gas? There is no gas. And then you're just eventually like, I can't, I can't make any progress. So let me give you two quick tunes to, to put on your playlist, all right? Tune number one is this. Two number one is God is with me. Two number one is God is with me. You're like, where are you getting that? Uh, look at verse. Um, look at verse eleven. See what he says. God is with me like a dread warrior. It's kind of an interesting term, dread warrior. It means like um, somebody who is plenty strong. It's like you know what the strong one. He's on my side. That's what he's saying, and he's with me. Here's what. I, here's the question that I would. He had told him this. Jeremiah one nineteen. He says. I am with you, 
declares the Lord, and I will deliver you. So he's preaching to himself a promise that God had made him. Here's a question. Think about it, and I'm going to ask it twice. How would your outlook on life change if you believed that God was really with you in every situation? How would your outlook on life change if you really believe? You're like, I don't believe it. I'm just saying if you believed it. it this is more than just the omnipresence of God. If you're a Christ follower, there's a way in which God is not only with you like a best friend, he's also on the inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask the question again. How would your outlook on life change if you really believed that God was with you in every single situation in life? If God was actually with you in those divorce proceedings, as all the stuff comes up, and you're like, you know what? God is with me in the divorce. How How would it affect you if God is with me as they clamp my company shut? How would it be if God is with you as you wake up with the same disability that you've had for the last 15 years? If you're like, you know what? God is with me. God will not forsake me. Because when you're depressed, when you're discouraged, you may feel alone, but you are not alone. So tune number one is God is with me. And then let me give you one last tune. And this is the tune that's hard to sometimes see, but it's the fact that God is at work. God is at work. He starts talking about all this stuff God is going to do because Jeremiah's feelings were saying, God closed up shop, left town. I preached 20 years, no response. And he slowly started to see that although God is silent, God was very, very active. And we should know this better than Jeremiah did. I mean, think about it. When Jesus is on the cross and he says in his native tongue, Eloi, Eloi, sabachthani. It's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We should understand that. I mean, at that time, Jesus needed a word. Jesus needed a word from his father. He's like, why have you forsaken me? And what we know, this side of the cross is, you know what? God was busier at any time in human history right then. Jesus taking all the sin on himself, your sin, my sin, and there he is redeeming the whole world. He couldn't see it. And so the point is, listen, if you're not dead, if you're not dead, then God's not done with you. You gotta understand that. This is Jeremiah chapter 20. This is not the end of the book. So if you're not dead, God's not done with you. You're like, I need to see it now. Brother, believe me, there's some stuff that I wake. I need to see this right now. I need to see it right now. And the bottom line is, uh, sometimes you will, sometimes you won't, but whatever it is that you're suffering through right now, The Bible says that 2 Corinthians 4, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Your emotions may be saying over, wasted life, no purpose at all. Jesus got up out of the grave, which means anything is possible and that ultimately, ultimately the story ends in victory. And you can call back, God's at work. God is at work. God called me and saved me by his grace and then set up for me every single day for me to walk in good works that he has already prepared beforehand. Ephesians chapter two, you can go to Psalm 139 and say, you know what? I am wonderfully and carefully made by God almighty. I'm not an accident. I've got a purpose. I'm here to be blessed by God and to bless other people. And so here's, uh, here's the way we'll, and if you can't, if you can't have any other ones, there's, a, there's another book he wrote 
Jeremiah uh, called Lamentations, and this one is a favorite passage. It says, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every every morning. Or Spurgeon said this one last time, I find no better cure for my depression than to trust in the Lord with all of my heart and to seek to realize afresh the power of the peace-speaking blood of Jesus and his infinite love in dying upon the cross to put away all of my transgressions. 